prayers. Let me know when you're ready back there. If y'all could please help me preach it tonight. There's been a little bit of resistance coming against me. The enemy doesn't want this type of message. So, Lord, we just thank you as we come in Jesus' name and through his blood. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the open heaven that's here, your glory that's here tonight. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to anoint and empower this time and glorify Christ. I thank you, Lord, for anointing and speaking through me everything that needs to be spoken tonight. That there'll be a flow. I thank you for your Holy Spirit even now moving on every person that's going to be hearing this or watching this. And <clears throat> that it will go out. Your word is living seeds of truth. Sown into good soil. Watered by the Holy Spirit. Take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. I thank you for your word being a light that dispels the darkness. Like a river just washing. The washing of the water of the word. And it'll be a hammer that breaks through strongholds. I thank you, Lord, for everything accomplished in and through this time, everything said and needs to be said, and that the winds of your spirit will carry this everywhere it needs to go to accomplish what it needs to. Lord, we thank you for it, and we know the birds of the air try to steal the seed, so we agree together. We submit this unto you. We resist the devil. We bind anything that would try to hinder this word in any way from getting where it's supposed to or accomplishing what it's supposed to. We command it to be bound and back off right now in Jesus' name. And Lord, I thank you for your angels clearing that out. And this will go forth and accomplish what you sent it forth to do. We thank you for it, and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to get into a series that I'm doing tonight. Just ask everybody, please help me. As little moving around as possible, just help me preach this and just agree with me tonight. There's specific spiritual resistance of, of specific spirits that come against these type of things, uh, moves of God and sermons about it that have to do with religion, a religious spirit. And it is, it is really an issue here in this region. There is like an, an anti-Christ spirit. Christ means the anointed one is an anti-anointing spirit. And it's a very religious thing. And so a religious spirit, like a Jezebel type religious witchcraft, a legalistic type thing, uh, it, it's no joke. It, it is a strong spirit. And you see it in, when you read the Bible with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the whole time that they're... A total enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole time, they felt that they were doing God's will. That right there is a religious spirit. They believe with all their heart that they're, they're right and they're doing God's will, but the whole time, they're the greatest enemy you could ever imagine to what God's wanting to do. It's a total deception. So anyway, that's the enemy of revival, and that's something we're facing in the second heaven here and in the lives of many, unfortunately. All right, when, when revival comes, though, the impossible becomes possible. It's just like you, if you were to come into where there were a, a large boat, maybe, and, and the tide was out, and the boat was kind of stuck in the mud. I mean, there's no way to move that boat. You can push it. You can have a lot of people pushing it. But when the tide comes in and the boat begins to lift up, then it's easy to move that thing. And it's the same way. It it seems impossible sometimes. But even as impossible as it is, when revival comes, the things that seem like they would never move will begin to move. So let me just give you a couple things tonight. This is really foundational. But in the days of Abraham, he dug certain wells. He found water. And then after the days of Abraham, the Philistines came in and covered those wells up. And so it was Isaac who came in later and redug the wells of his father. So that's a picture and type of revival that 
those that have gone on before us have seen a, a real strong move of the Holy Spirit, the river flowing, but the enemy came in and began to cover up those wells. And we need to see all of that kind of recovered. And as I go, I think that you'll see what I'm talking about, recovery. That there's, a, there's an aspect of restoration that's in revival. And if you look at the church from a biblical perspective and then through church history, you see that the church was birthed at Pentecost. The church was not birthed as Jesus raised from the dead and appeared to them, really, that they were told to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came, and then the birth of the church happened when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And not only that, but every significant advancement in church history has always been by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It has never been because of human endeavor. It just hasn't. And so every time, and I'll go through that through this whole series. That's really what this series is going to be about. I'm going to make it a point to not get too bogged down with specific dates and, and just a lot of things that bog down sermons. I'm going to try to, to stick to concepts throughout this and just deal with it from that perspective as a pastor. But I want to go through the revivals over the last couple hundred years and, and what we can learn and then what we can see in the days ahead because I believe that God has a great move of God for us. Now, again, the church was born on Pentecost, the baptism in the Holy Ghost, the fire of God. People seemed drunk in the Spirit, tongues, you see. And whenever the gospel was being preached by Peter, there was a cutting to the heart. There was an anointing on that word that caused people to repent. So that's the power of the Holy Spirit coming in and doing what no man can do. And that is reminiscent of what I've, I've read in Zechariah as he was dealing with the Second Temple period. And they looked at it as something, how are we ever going to do this? But Zechariah came in and said, it won't be by human might or power, but it will be by my spirit, says the Lord, that these things will happen. So there's certain things that you'll never be able to do. But when the Holy Ghost shows up, it becomes possible. And there's a, a great historian, um, Edwin Orr, and I really love his writings. And he has some, some really good books uh, on revival. He's a historian. And he kind of gave a definition of revival, and he said this, it is a movement of the Holy Spirit bringing about a revival of New Testament Christianity to the church. And so I would say it this way, what I've always said, is we need Book of Acts Christianity, but the only way to get Book of Acts Christianity is when the Holy Spirit comes in power. And so that's what it is. It is a restoration of Book of Acts Christianity, which you read in the Bible, that the sick are healed, demons are cast out of people. So the main thing about revival is the harvest, but I want to share a few things. So as I've taught on this many times, Second Chronicles 7.14 Joel chapter 2, Isaiah 58, deals with humility, prayer, fasting, being givers financially, and deeply consecrating your life. And it says if you'll do those things, you'll, you'll meet that criteria. He gives a bunch of promises in there about driving away your enemies and pouring out his spirit and restoring and healing. It's a powerful, powerful um, you know, group of scriptures here put together, a lot of promises. And so... But I want to show you some things. When people begin to get desperate and they begin to press in, here's some things that revivals will do. 
Number one, revivals restore back essential truths that have been lost or abandoned by previous generations. You know what that is? Isaiah 58 is people pray and fast and, and God begins to move that the, the ancient ruins are rebuilt. The age-old foundations are restored. The breach is repaired. Streets to dwell in. It's the wells of revival that are redug. And so it's something that, like the altar, so to speak, is restored. It's essential truths um, that are abandoned but are restored back again. Also, in times of revival, an impossible harvest begins to come in. An impossible harvest. This is where people thought it would never be able to happen. Hard ground, difficult, hardened hearts. You know, I was talking to Sergio Scataglini about the revival in Argentina. And, you know, we know about the story about uh, Edward Miller that went there in the 40s, and they began to plow through prayer. And then um, uh, that guy, Tommy, I forget his last name, came and saw that great move of God in the 50s. That was during the days of the 40s and 50s revivals. But that was the groundwork. Something happened in the heavens. Something was plowed there. And then later on, this revival began to break out as Carlos Anaconda began to have these revival meetings starting in La Plata, but he went to the ghettos. But Sergio told me, he said, you know, he said, Argentina was very difficult. He said that the people there were obstinate. He said it was predominantly Catholic, but more than anything, it was just people just weren't religious and didn't care. And I know that you guys remember uh, the Perone family, as you read about that in the book, many of you did. But she was beginning to get into the occult and lead the nation that way. But it, it was just a difficult place. But here's what happened. When Edward Miller and those guys began to really pray and fast and cry out, something broke. And that when all of a sudden that, that difficult soil, what seemed impossible, people didn't care. When God came down, man, it, that nation saw the greatest revival. All right. The impossible harvest begins to come in. Also in times of revival, a bride is made ready to meet the Lord in the air. Also, major revivals will restore life, fire, and vitality to the church. And of course, we know it fulfills the scripture that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. The question is, how do these historic revivals, how are they birthed? How do they come about? It is during very dark and difficult, dry times that God's remnant, not everybody, but there's a remnant that they see. And this is the thing that I've noticed in, even over the last 15, 20 years, that there'll be a group of people, a remnant, that seem to have eyes to see and ears to hear that are not going along with the status quo. And they're not caught up in every passing fad. They're not into every little thing they actually see the condition of the world and the condition of the church, and they know that it's not good. And so in a desperation, as I talked about last week, there's like a desperate cry to God as they begin to cry out in prayer, not only a desperate cry but a groan. And as people begin to come together and pray and seek God in deep prayer, crying out, many times fasting mixed with their prayer, that God begins to hear and begin to respond and pour out his spirit. 
And I know that uh, Matthew 18, 19 through 20, it talks about gathering together and harmonizing. So it says where two or three are gathered together in my name, and I've shared this a lot, but the gathering together implies in the Greek they're drawn together. And see, this remnant will be drawn together. And it says as they harmonize, they're in, in the Greek, the word there, we translate it agree together, but the Greek means like a harmony or a symphony. And so there's this collective sound as God draws people together for such a time as this. And there are the sounds of praise and worship, prayer and intercession, the deep prayers, the deep groans, those sounds that are by the Spirit, they come together like a harmony that goes right up to the throne of God. And those type of prayers, Jesus said, when they come together and they harmonize together in prayer, they're in unity, they're in one accord, they're crying out. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, whatever they ask, whatever they touch, it will be done. Remember that scripture? So when we agree together as touching this and we're, we're together in unity, God responds. And there, there are times of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There are seasons of revival. And I know that the late 80s and through the 90s was just a wave of revival. And that waned, but we're about to see another. Now, the prophets saw, as I'm laying some groundwork in this, the prophets saw, even in the 80s, I have books and everything, I've read this, they saw there'd be two waves. The first would be not that big of a wave, but it would affect the world and many would get saved. And then they saw a lot of people got saved or got right with God in the first wave, that there would be another greater wave come in behind it, and those that had been touched in the previous wave would be used in that last wave. And so that's, that's about to happen, that second wave. And even during, uh, I believe it was 1994, it could have been 95, but I think it was 94, even as Toronto, the Holy Spirit fell there in Airport Christian Fellowship hard. I mean... Apparently, I wasn't physically there, but just hearing people talk about it, they said that it was just a suddenly. The Holy Spirit just fell in the room hard. I mean, people were thrown to the ground, and I mean, it was an amazing move of God. And as they began to have this conference where people were coming together, they called it Catch the Fire Conference. And the heart of John Arnott was that God's really moving. Let's gather together different ministry leaders and all that. Let's get a fresh touch and let's fan the flame of revival. And so people were coming. And in the midst of that, David Ruiz was, was singing and he was playing the keyboard up there. And there's a video of this that's on YouTube if you can find it. But he's up there and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just hits him. I mean, out of nowhere. And his arms are moving and he begins to prophesy. And it's interesting that what he began to say was, was that you think that this is it and this is not it at all. He said, this is just the beginning. There's another move that's coming, you see. And he was, he was saying the same thing the prophets had seen. That first move in the 90s, late, you know, mid to late 80s through the 90s into probably, I'd say, 2005, that move, it was about 20 years there, was a preparation for what's about to come. And so in revivals, there's a, a gathering and a scattering phase. God will gather people, and in our nation, we saw this in the days of, of the Pensacola Revival. As people came from around the world, everybody was gathering together. It was a gathering phase. But then people were beginning to be scattered back out. And now, all throughout America, 
There's different people that have been touched in revival very powerfully that are sprinkled throughout all of this nation. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. Because we always talk about salt and light. Light is our, us being a witness, the way we live, but also us sharing our faith. We're, we're being a light to a dark world. But salt has to do with your prayer and intercession. And so the interesting thing is, if you were to have a big old steak in front of you, and you were going to put salt on it, you don't just put salt on one little spot of the steak and put a whole bunch on that one spot, do you? Okay, you sprinkle it evenly throughout the whole steak. In the same way, the, God has his salt sprinkled throughout all of America. It's not just consolidated into one place. And so we're called to be salt. And he's gone to scatter throughout, and our prayers make a huge difference. Now, I'm going to tell you, the prayers of God's people, the Bible says that the prayers of the righteous make tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. And so collectively, as we're praying, many times we don't see that there are so many others that are in agreement with us throughout this whole nation, and God sees that. And it, that's why America has been sustained and why certain things that could have happened haven't happened is because people are praying. And I believe that, that it'll make sense later on as to why many things have happened and God's permitted certain things. But God's focus is end-time prophecy is going to be fulfilled, period. That's just going to happen. But his heart is, is that people be saved, okay, and that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a bride made ready for Christ's coming. We're not going to always understand. And it, when we look at the geopolitical scene of the world and we see all these crazy things, all this stuff happening in the world, people can get confused and not understand things. Our focus needs to be on this. God is going to pour out his spirit. His heart is that there be a harvest of souls. And his heart is, is that a bride is made ready for his coming. And so that's what he's doing. And he's wanting us to, to partner with him and get in step with him about that, okay? And don't get too caught up with things that are beyond us, that we're not going to understand all of that. Also, all major historic revivals have incited negative reactions. It seems the intensity of the criticism is proportionate to the intensity and significance of the revival. So in other words, the greater the persecution, it's a sign of the greater significance of the revival. It is... Satan's attack through many times his Trojan horse. Those are his servants among God's people. These are the critics. These are Satan's fifth column that will try anything that they can. Nowadays, making video, YouTube videos, different channels, different blogs, etc. They'll do whatever they can to try to discredit and come against any move of God. And their, their intentions to impede the speed, the spreading, and the purpose of the revival. And just like I said before, this is a religious demon. These people, just like the Pharisees, will persecute the move of God and all the time believe that they are being used of God to come against something that's of the devil. They're completely deceived. And another interesting thing in revival that really amazes me because you see this at the Azusa Street revival that uh, William Seymour had to deal with because Charles Parham was mightily used in Topeka, Kansas and 
They saw kind of the birth of Pentecost, but yet, you know, he began to really come against the revival to Susan Street. And sometimes the fathers of revival, you know, in one way they'll be used real powerfully and then they'll turn around and persecute either the next move of God or people that are a little bit different. And so you got to be careful with that because God moves in different ways. And I remember during the 90s, I mean, you go, I went to all these moves of God, but you go to Rodney Howard Brown's meetings and it was one way. Then you go to Benny Hinn meetings and it was very different, but it was still God, but it was very different meeting, very different move of God. Then you go maybe to something like a Toronto-type revival, and it was one way. And then you go to Brownsville, and it was different. It, it was just different expressions of the same Holy Spirit. It was the same move of God, but it was just different anointings and different ways that God was moving. And if you're not careful, you can be in on one move of God and kind of maybe get spiritual pride that this is the way it's supposed to be or maybe a spiritual fear of anything different than what you're used to. I don't know what the issue is there. But regardless, then they begin to persecute things that are not the same as what they have here, you see. So be careful with that because there's going to be different expressions in revival, the move of God. Um, G. Campbell Morgan was a contemporary of Gypsy Smith, those that are familiar with his ministry. But G. Campbell Morgan was an influential minister in Britain during the days of the Welsh Revival early 1900s. He was in Britain at a famous church, um, Westminster Chapel, and he had been really mightily impacted with the Welsh Revival. As a matter of fact, G. Campbell Morgan was very supportive of the Welsh Revival, and he spoke highly of it, and he was really impressed that to see these young people so powerfully touched by God and used by God. Yet, G. Campbell Morgan, when the Holy Spirit fell at Azusa Street, I haven't read one account, maybe he went, but I personally have not read an account to indicate that he even went to Azusa. Maybe he did. But yet, as God moved in the Welsh revival, he was so supportive, but when God poured out his spirit in Azusa in Los Angeles, California, he pointed his finger and called it the last vomit of Satan. What is that about? You see what I'm saying? It was a different move of God. Same Holy Spirit, and we all know now that he missed God. And as Steve Hill pointed out, unfortunately, he was probably used of the devil to cause many to go to hell that didn't have to, and I'll tell you why. And Steve Hill pointed this out. Because if he would have encouraged people to go to the revival, they would have got powerfully touched at the revival, and then they would have went out among the nations and saw a great harvest of souls. God has always moved in a glory cloud, and that's kind of the, 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 when God begins to move, there is like a cloud of his glory that concentrates in a place, and sometimes you can see that. I remember people talking about that at the Azusa Street Revival. There's books, accounts, eyewitness accounts. Also, other revivals through the centuries, through the years, have talked about a cloud, but I remember even at Brownsville, they said that sometimes the glory would come in and you could see a glory cloud, a haze in the auditorium. But the glory, here's some interesting uh, scriptures about the glory here. In Exodus 19, 1 through 16, when God came down on Mount Sinai, the glory of God came down and it formed like a cloud on Sinai. And you heard a shofar blast out of that cloud. It also caused an earthquake. 
it seems, and there may be some connection with this, you can just, I'll, I'll put this out there and then you chew on it and come up with your own conclusions. But Jesus said about the last days, one of the signs of the end times, the birth pangs, would be that there would be an increase of earthquakes in both frequency and intensity. And secular science has proven this. I looked it up myself, that you can look this up, that there has been over the last hundred years or so, there has been an increase of earthquakes, both um, with more frequent places that have never been known for earthquakes, having earthquakes, and also the intensity of them has increased. Now, I wonder, because just like God came down on Mount Sinai, and the mountain shook so violently, and God's people even trembled, there was a shaking. There was a shaking of the earth. There was a shaking of God's people. They shook. I wonder if there's not a connection with the increase in these latter days, the last couple hundred years, beginning, I would say, with the Methodist revival, mid-1700s, that there's been an increase in the frequency and the intensity of revivals. I wonder if there's not a connection. God, when he comes down, there is going to be a shaking. Also, not only a cloud on Sinai, but you see in Exodus 13, 21, that the cloud led God's people by day and a fire by night. In Psalm 105, 39, Isaiah 4, you see that the glory cloud formed like a protection that causes prosperity and health. You see in 1 Kings 8, 1 through 11, the glory cloud came in to where the priest could not stand to minister in the temple because the glory cloud came in. In Mark chapter 9, verse 7, God spoke through the cloud. In Acts 1, verse 9, Jesus, when he ascended, went up into what? A cloud. In Mark 13, 26, and Luke 21, 27, when Jesus returns, he's going to return in what? The clouds. So there's something about the glory, revival, and the cloud that go together. And I was reading this about Jonathan Edwards. He talked about the, our first great awakening that happened in England and here in the States. And Jonathan Edwards was really used powerfully. He was the one that preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he saw a great move of God in his church. It was just a season. It was time for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's said about Jonathan Edwards that he simply wrote that sermon out as the Holy Spirit gave it to him. And he just looked, he was like this, his head was down, and he just simply read it. He didn't even preach it with fire. He just read the sermon God gave him. But the Holy Spirit moved so powerfully into that place that the people were gripped with the fear of God. It said that the people that were there, some of them said they literally felt like they were dangling over the fires of hell. People white-knuckled the pew in front of them. They came down to repent and get right. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was moving on that sermon. See, when the Holy Spirit is really anointing something, you don't have to scream and yell. You don't have to work up a crowd. You don't have to get people jumping up and down. God's going to come in and breathe on that, and the Holy Spirit will do it. So Jonathan Edwards, when he talked about the revival, he was a first, uh, you know, he had a firsthand account. He saw it as an eyewitness, what happened in his church. And this is what he said. He wrote this. He said, when God did, as it were, to suddenly open their eyes, 
and let into their minds a sense of greatness of his grace, the fullness of Christ, and God's readiness to save. Their joyful surprise had caused their hearts to leap so that they had been ready to break forth into laughter. He actually saw that there was joy, there was laughter there in the revival. Tears also at the same time issuing like a flood, weeping uncontrollably, even loud weeping. It was a very frequent thing to see a house full of this. Look at this, outcries, people shouting or screaming out outcries. He says faintings. These are people just falling under the power. That's been in every revival. If you want to say what's one common theme, people... When God comes, people cannot continue to stand. That's just a fact. People collapse under the power. He said it was common that a house full of people, there would be outcry, screaming, people shouting, screaming, loud outbursts, people collapsing under the power. He said convulsions, people shaking under the power of God, and such like both with either distress and also with admiration and joy. So sometimes people were under a Holy Spirit. They were under conviction. Maybe they were crying out and they were weeping and asking God for forgiveness and they were trembling under that type of conviction while others have received forgiveness and they were also hit by the power, collapsed and shaking, but maybe they were laughing with joy. Mind you, all of this going on at the same time. (laughs) Can you imagine? Actually, I've seen it. So it's it's the most awesome thing, but God comes in like that. I mean, I've seen it myself many times, actually. I remember one time we had a particular outcry where uh, it was a gathering of young people. Several youth groups came together, and at this time, we had had like a mini fire tunnel. We had all the young people come through, and when they got to a certain point, the Holy Spirit was just slamming these young people. I mean, it was very powerful. It was very intense. And people were getting delivered from demonic spirits. People were being baptized in the Holy Ghost. We had so many young people who get hit by the power and collapse. People had to kind of carry them off and get them out of the way. But all at the same time, you would hear weeping and wailing over here. You would hear hysterical laughter over here. A demon screaming out as it left over here. Somebody else getting baptized in the Holy Ghost screaming in tongues. It was a holy chaos. But I'll tell you the outworking of the whole thing, people's lives were eternally changed. And Jonathan Edwards says, many, as people, the Holy Spirit would fall in the room, outcries, faintings, convulsions, and such the light both with either distress or admiration and joy. And he said, many remaining for perhaps a whole 24 hours motionless with their senses locked up. But in the meantime, they were under a strong imagination, meaning they were seeing something. As though they went to heaven and had visions of glorious and delightful objects. Caught up. Think about that. He said some of these people would have this encounter. He called it faintings. They would collapse under the power. He said they would remain motionless, some of them, for even up to 24 hours. Motionless. Caught up. The way he's describing it here, it's almost like in a trance or something, caught up, and they had visions of things of heaven. 
This has always been in revivals. I mean, I can't stop and go on because I'll deal with it in this whole series. I'm just kind of giving you a little tidbit here. This is a foundational sermon tonight. But every revival has had this. I mean, look at Cambridge. Every revival, the Hebridean revival, every move of God has been marked with God coming down, people gripped with the fear of God. And there'd be outcries, there'd be people collapsing, people shaking under the power, people speaking in tongues, people delivered, people healed. But at the end of the day, it's important to understand that lives are being changed. And don't try to control that. God has got to find people where he can pour out his spirit that won't try to control every little thing. Because if they do, they're going to kill the move of God quickly, like in just a couple days. You're going to have to take your hands off and just let God be God and trust him. And religious people will never understand any of this. They'll never get it. They don't understand the move of God. They don't understand manifestations of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they're against it. But many times God will start things in very humble surroundings. And this is because of human pride. And just keep in mind that even though God many times will start in very humble surroundings and humble places. I think about Azusa Street started in a little house with around 12 or so African Americans back in the days of the Jim Crow laws, mind you, in segregation. The Holy Spirit fell in this little house. And literally, that's what, where we get the term holy roller from because they were being so hit by the power, they were falling and rolling down the... <laughs> they did. I mean, that was... And so William Seymour, they, they were outgrowing the house because people were like, man, what's going on in this place? I and mean, people were speaking in tongues and collapsing and falling and rolling down the yard. And, and so people were coming to, out of curiosity and hearing about what's going on. And William Seymour had to go rent the mission Susan Street Mission. And as he rented the place and bought it or whatever, it was just an old stable. I mean, you think about it. They had to go in there and had to get their shovels out to scoop out the poop. They had to clean it. I mean, this wasn't something that was fancy. This was boards nailed onto wooden uh, tubs and made into little makeshift pews. This wasn't a fancy choir. This was a little piano. God put on William Seymour's heart also. is just is one of those things. That he just had a box over his head. And somebody asked him, said, well, why in the world do you have this box over your head? And everybody, you know, doing their thing. They begin to worship. And at some point, he'd take the box and get up and preach. And he said, well, why are you putting this wooden box on your head? And he said, because I want to isolate myself from everything around me and just focus on God because I want to hear what God is saying so that I can make sure that I'm saying what God's saying. That takes humility. And a funny story. I didn't know what was going on when I got there, but uh, R.W. Shambach. Anybody heard of R.W. preach? And um, everybody, everybody, because back in the day, it was like the radio ministry and all that. Everybody thought R.W. Shambach was black <laughs> until, until they came to see him or until television he got on TV. But he would preach that way. He's a fiery preacher. And I remember going to see Brother R.W. before he passed away. He was pretty, you know, he's pretty old at the time. And they brought the chair out to the edge. And I remember they put something on him. I thought, my Lord, what is this? Because it was this, um, I don't know how to describe it, some kind of a thing they put on him. And he was praying for people. 
And I was just there to receive, and I got prayer. It was really powerful. I really enjoyed my time. He's a great preacher, hilarious, very anointed. And I remember toward the end, I understood what was going on. And we remember reading Acts chapter 19, that handkerchiefs and apron aprons came in contact with Paul, and then they were sent out, people were healed and all that. Well, Brother R.W. has seen a lot of healings, I mean major healings. And that's what that was. Some, some sweet lady had put that, like sewed it in or something on a garment, put that on him, and R.W. was like, you realize how much humility it takes for me to get up here and wear this stupid-looking thing while I pray for people, you know? <laughs> but, uh, man, miracles would break out. They would take those type of handkerchiefs and aprons, send them out, and people get healed, you know? But be careful about making snap judgments. Because you, you can sit back, and all of a sudden in a, in a church service, you hear somebody let out some scream, and you think they're being disrupted. They collapse on the ground, and... And the service goes on, and what you don't know is that maybe that person had been molested, and maybe they had been so hurt and abused and been through so much. And in the midst of that revival of the Lord Jesus, maybe all of a sudden they saw a vision of him right in front of their face, and they scream as he totally heals their broken heart. And you don't even know. You, you're thinking, well, why are they screaming? Well, maybe their whole entire life just got transformed in the presence of God. Maybe that's what happened. But God will many times begin in very humble surroundings, very humble places. And I believe that that also, because I'm going to get to manifestations here in just a moment, I believe that that's why God, the Holy Spirit, moves in such a way to create these manifestations of his spirit where people shake, fall, cry, laugh, whatever. I believe, if somebody say, why? I think one of the main reasons, and I don't think it's the only reason, I think one of the main reasons is because it offends the pride of people. And it's on purpose. I think that God does that to oppose the proud. Because it requires humility. You know, what did Steve Hill used to always say? He said, man's desperation for God will drive them to begin to go after God, to even look like a fool in front of their peers to be embraced in the arms of God. And I remember sharing that on Facebook or whatever, and his wife, Jerry, commented and said he really meant that. That was, he, he really did. And I, I saw that in Brother Steve, just a humble hunger for God. So you have to be humble and realize that your church is not the only place God's going to pour out his spirit. Don't try to box in revival. Don't try to control revival. Don't try to monopolize what God's doing, because if you do, God's going to leave and go somewhere else. There is always going to be overt acts of God produced by God to cause what the flesh to stumble. That's what I just said. Revivals, the manifestations that take place, people see it, that the pride of sinful man will get offended, or there'll be a humility to press in past that to receive. And understand this. We need to ask the questions when it comes to manifestations. We don't major on manifestations, but... Just like a lot of places that are revival ministries where God's moved, we've seen a lot of Holy Spirit manifestations down through the years. And you need to ask yourself, does it glorify the Lord? Is it creating a hunger in people? Is it drawing people closer to Jesus? What, what is going on here? You need to ask the questions, what's going on? Are people being brought to a closer relationship to Jesus? Are they repenting of their sins? Is their lives being changed? Because if it's really God, that's going to be what's happening. 
And we need to, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. You can either take out your camera or your video camera. Let me explain it. The Apostle Paul's riding his donkey down the road to Damascus with his group of people that were with him, his entourage. They're just going along as he was to persecute the church. All of a sudden, the Lord Jesus appears to him in a vision. Nobody else sees it, but there's a fear that comes. He is, what happens to Paul? He is thrown from his donkey on the ground, pinned to the ground. He sees a vision. You know, this is kind of sounding a little bit like the revivals we read about. Thrown to the ground, seeing a vision, motionless for a time. And Paul in this vision, the other people didn't know what was going on. They, they weren't seeing the vision. They were in fear, and some of them kind of scattered because of it. They, they heard something, if I remember right, like thunder. They felt something. But Paul was caught up in this vision. And then Paul comes out of this encounter with the Lord, and he's blind for like three days. And he goes to Ananias, who prays for him, in which... The scales fall off his eyes. It's a major miracle. He's actually healed from being blind. And he's baptized in the Holy Ghost. So we have to ask ourselves, if we were to go there that day, and we were to just take our camera instead of our video camera, we would take a snapshot of Paul thrown off his donkey and him saying something, I saw a vision, that was it. People could get all kinds of critical about that, couldn't they? Oh, this guy, what's going on with him? He needs to get locked up. He's crazy. He's hearing voices and seeing things, man. The guy fell off his donkey, and now he wants to say all this stuff happened. But when you take, get rid of the camera and you get out your video camera and you follow Paul back to Ananias' house, and then you follow him out to a season of prayer where he sought the Lord deeply for years, and then you follow him now to where he becomes one of the greatest apostles of the early church who wrote much of the Bible, all of a sudden you could say, now wait a second, wait just a minute. What happened to Paul on the road to Damascus was God, and it really did change his life. But see, here's the thing. People, if Paul was to come into most places today and share that story, people really would persecute him and run him out of the church. You know as well as I do, it's true. Can you imagine somebody coming in? I was driving my car the other day. All of a sudden, this bright light I jerked off the road, I fell out of my car. I was blind. I mean, for three days, my, I had to have somebody take me, and then this, this spirit-filled person comes up to me all shouting in tongues, lays hands on me. Something fell off my eyes. I was baptized in the Holy Ghost. I shook and I spoke in tongues. You know as well as I do, a lot of places would make fun of them and run them out like they were crazy. So manifestations of the Holy Spirit, we don't need to take our camera and just take a snapshot. We need to take our video camera and follow the outworking of that encounter because if that's an encounter with the Lord and it's real, they're going to be different. You see, I talk about what happened to me, and many, there's different stories, but probably the one I share the most is that Brownsville in 96, when I went, God touched me. I, I was, fell back on the floor. I was baptized in fire, but when I came back, everything was different. I mean, my life was totally transformed. 
all of a sudden now I was hungry for God. I was hungry for prayer, hungry, hungry for the word. I had a burden for souls. See, if you were to just take the snapshot of me being thrown back in the air and hitting the ground, you can make some snap judgment. But whenever you see that my entire life was transformed, So manifestations of the Holy Spirit are all through the Word of God. We don't major on them, but they do seem to be in revival in a much more amplified way, okay? And so you see things, for example, here's some various manifestations and scriptures uh, speaking in tongues, Acts chapter 2, just to name one place. But when the Holy Spirit falls, there's going to be speaking in tongues. Falling under the power of God. I mean, at the Cane Ridge Revival, there was a guy, I mean, this is one, that's probably one of my favorite revivals. That and the Hebridean Revival are some of my favorite to read about. But the Cane Ridge Revival, it was a guy that went there to kind of mock it. And he climbed up in a tree and he was watching. And he said that, man, the Holy Spirit, now he's describing this. I don't have his in front of me to read it. I'll find it. And sometime in here, I'm going to read this thing. But he wrote, just like Jonathan Edwards did, he wrote a little description. But he said that the, the Holy Spirit, when, when God began to move, he said the sounds, the shrieks, the outcries, it was like it would just send chills up your spine. And he, he was up in that tree, and his heart started racing. He was feeling this presence that scared him. And he said he looked, and he saw people, some of them maybe by the hundreds over here and others by the thousands at the same time. He said it looked like a battering ram just hit him because all these people were just thrown, just mowed down under the power of God. And the sounds that came up out of that crowd, and it just freaked him out. And that was one of the main manifestations of the Cain Ridge Revival that made me laugh the most was running. People, God would come, and the sphere of God would come, and some of these people would get afraid and try to run from it, to find themselves in mid-stride, <laughs> collapsing under the power and having a life-altering encounter with God. I mean, that made me laugh so hard. But there was all these manifestations, and, which, mind you, I'm going to read this, but, I mean, some of these, Barton Stone went there, and he was the, actually the pastor at Cambridge, the Presbyterian Church. But I don't want to get in this too much, but the revival started with James McGreedy in the Red River, Muddy River area. And he went there, and he said this as a guy that was just a humble servant of God, very intelligent. He went there humble. He went there hungry for God, but he went there kind of investigating it, not critically, but just kind of in awe. This is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. And, I mean, people would have some encounter, and he would go over and watch them. And he was writing about it. This person's doing this. And, and he was making notes. He was really studying this because to him, he was in awe. He even brought a heathen with him. And the guy got saved. But as he was there, he wrote about it. And he said some of the manifestations, he said that he saw some people that their head, your center looking at, he said their head would shake so violently, so fast, back and forth or forward and backward like this, back and forth. He said he'd be looking at them, and their facial features would just blur. <laughs> he was like, that had to be God. You can't do that. He said he saw that there were people hit by the power, and some of the women were deeply bowing over. He said that it was so radical that they would go so far back and then forward so fast 
feet planted, mind you, just back and forth. I mean, he said it was so radical, their hair would come out of their bun, their Holy Ghost bun, right? And their hair would snap out of the bun, and he said their hair would form like a whip, and he said there was no way that somebody could do that. And then, you know, to get past all of the manifestation, crazy manifestations, things that people would sit there and go, my God, what is going on, right? He's, he got past all that, and this is what, because he, he really studied this out. He went there and, like, took notes of people. What was this person saved before they came? What was their story? He took notes, and he remarked at the end of what all that he saw, he said, there is no way that this is the devil. He said, I'll tell you why. Because he, he said, these people are legitimately accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior, number one. And number two, they are sincerely repenting of their sin. And then number three, they are trying to lead other people to Jesus Christ. He said the devil would never do that. So he said, you got to get past all the crazy manifestations. And there was, there was this story even about a young lady, I believe, she, a Baptist lady had a couple daughters. Whether one of them got hit by the power, fell out motionless. Just This is Cambridge. 50 years after the revival I just read, okay, Jonathan Edwards. Same Holy Spirit, manifestations, but this young lady collapses under the power, motionless for a long time. Her mother was starting to get worried. It's kind of down there by her, you know, how moms would do and kind of fanning her. Is she okay? It's, you know, really worried about her. And um, all, she would hear her sometimes kind of come to and she'd be mumbling things like, Jesus, forgive me, Lord. I repent. I re and she'd go back out. And her mom was like, man, what's going on with my daughter? Her daughter gets up later. Face seems to be shining. She has been born again. And now she begins to preach the gospel loud. Young lady. Other people start coming around her to hear what she's saying. They begin to collapse under the power and begin to have the same thing happen to them. So there's these manifestations of speaking in tongues, falling under the power. Falling under the power you can see in the Bible, Ezekiel 1.28 and also 3.23, Daniel 10.9. Remember when, was it Gabriel appeared to Daniel and Daniel just collapsed, just kind of melted, you know. Uh, Revelation 1.17, John 18.6, Acts chapter 9. Do you remember when Jesus, they came to arrest Jesus? And... Um, the Roman, the Roman uh, guards and all those came, and there was a group of them, and they were saying, who's Jesus? They were looking for specifically him, and he said, I am he. And when he said that, every one of them fell backward in the power. You remember reading that? Acts chapter 9. Also, another manifestation is deliverance of people from demons, even in the midst of church. Luke 4.33. Also, another manifestation, jerking, shaking, and trembling under the power. I've seen people shake so violently that their bodies would be shaking on, on the floor so violently. Right here, I saw a young man that they would kind of come off the ground. They were shaking so violently. I'm just telling you that when God comes, his power is so awesome. You know, if you were to lick your finger and go stick it in an electric socket, how many knows your body is going to react? How much more powerful is God than electricity? 
It's just with God, it's not a painful thing. It's a glorious thing. But it's an encounter with his awesome power. There's going to be shaking. And that's Daniel um, 10.7, Jeremiah 23.9, Habakkuk 3.16, Psalms 99.1, and also Psalm 114, verse 7. Also, there's going to be people caught up in trances. Mariah Woodworth Etter, precious woman of God, traveled, set up tents, preached, used my live God, but that was a manifestation that seemed to follow her ministry a lot. I mean, there were accounts of her going into a town and she would be preaching the gospel of gospel crusade for weeks or whatever, and, and there'd be some random guy that's out plowing his field like a mile away, and he'd be out there plowing the field and all of a sudden get caught up in a trance and be there for like 24 hours. Have an encounter with the Lord, see something and see Jesus, repent, give his life to the Lord, and his whole life was changed. But people caught up in trances. In the Bible, Acts chapter 10, Peter was caught up in a trance. Do you all remember that? He went on the roof, began to pray. Also shrieks. This can be because the Holy Spirit just falls so hard. You gotta understand, there are people that come into these revivals that have never been in church. They don't know God. They, they've never encountered God's presence. And when they encounter all of a sudden God's presence like that, on that level of intensity, many of them just begin to shriek. And it could be that they're being delivered from some things or they're just encountering God's power, God's healing them. And that's Acts 8, 7 in that particular scripture they were being delivered from demons but also another manifestation in revival is groaning moaning and wailing that's romans 8 26 the holy spirit we don't know how to pray but the holy spirit will pray through us with groanings too deep for words and that's you guys have heard a lot of that here but groaning moaning and wailing in the spirit there's a lot of intercession in that also, intense weeping or intense laughing. Nehemiah 1.4, Ezekiel 10.1, Psalm 126, 5 through 6. Intense weeping or intense laughing. Also, deep bowing. That's why I was talking about at Cane Ridge. And I saw that a lot at Brownsville. People just involuntarily, uh, their bodies would bow. And that's Ezra 10.1, Psalm 35, 13 through 14. And, of course, as I mentioned, laughing. But laughing can be a part of revival, and it has been. From the different historical accounts I've read, this is how God would do it. The Holy Spirit would fall, and all these people that were maybe heathen or maybe just religious would begin to really come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they would begin to weep and wail before God and cry out and ask God for mercy, ask Him for forgiveness, there was this deep cry unto God, we repent. And at some point in time, as they began to get the forgiveness of sins and they felt that weight off them, it would move from all this weeping into laughter and joy because they knew that they were saved and they were forgiven and they were free. Also, another manifestation is being still and solemn. Psalm 25, verse 5, 27, verse 14, and Psalm 131, verse 2. But sometimes just being really still and solemn 
Another manifestation is being drunk in the spirit. Man, we've seen all these type of things, but I remember times that leading worship, and I remember this young lady, we were just leading worship here, and I saw her. All of a sudden, the power of God just hit her. She shook and got thrown backward on the ground. I've seen other times where church is kind of over, and, and somebody couldn't get up. I've seen other times where people were just so drunk in the spirit, they were out of it. We had to help carry people out. Another manifestation is visions and dreams, like Jonathan Edwards talks about. You know, people would have encounters, but they would be caught up and see things. Also, people confessing their sin openly and making things right with people. Acts 19, 18 through 20. I'll try to get all these scriptures, uh, you know, in the notes if I can, but at you know, visions and dreams, what do you have, Acts 10, 9 through 17, and drunk in the spirit, that was on the day of Pentecost, wasn't it? Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 13, and Ephesians 5, 18 talks about, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. So I remember this account, and when Steve Hill and I were, were together, we were talking, and he was speaking in my life, prayed for me. I, I was talking to him about revival, and and he was telling me this story, and I knew the story. It was pretty amazing. And I was asking him questions. What have you learned? Let me share some with you, actually. What have you learned about the anointing? He said, well, let me tell you. He said, one night I was praying for people. He said, I was so exhausted. We've been praying for people all night. And he said, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm kind of ready to go, and I'm there at the, the front area, and I look out, and there's this whole group of people now that want prayer. So I was so tired, so spent. But he said, I told all of them, I said, join hands together. There's this huge circle, people holding hands. And he grabs our hands and says, now, Lord. And all of a sudden, he said, all of them just fall under the power. And he said, I'm able to go home and go to sleep. He said, little time passes, same type of scenario. We've been praying for people all night. I was exhausted again. I got up there to the front. I was ready to go. And I look out, and there's a group of people there still wanting prayer. He said, Lord, so, all right, guys, join hands. And he grabs her hand and says, now, Lord, and nothing happens. He said, that's what I've learned about the anointing. Now, think about that for a minute. Just let that sink in. <laughs> you can't control the Holy Spirit. And I, and I know um, I asked him about what have you learned about prayer? And he said, well, and so I'll tell you what I've learned about prayer. He said, a lot of people talk about it but not a lot of people do it. And so, as I spent time with him, he told this story. And here's the background of this story. So that, and this actually made, if you've ever seen the documentary on the Brownsville Revival, it was long, it was like four-hour documentary. This is in there. But there was a guy that lived in another state, and his wife got saved. She went down to Pensacola, got saved. And she was touched in revival, totally transformed. But this family was uppity. They had money. They, had, you know, they were doing well. But he had an alcohol problem. And he had where he would, if I remember right, he would take some uppers in the morning, some downers at night. He was, he was popping pills. He was drinking a lot. Their marriage was kind of struggling. And, and she went down there and got saved. And um, she wanted him to come. As he began to look into it, he said, my God, man, she's in a cult. And so he was going down there to get her out of a cult. And 
it begins, a blizzard hits, and he's heading down there to Pensacola. I'm going to get my wife out of this. He's driving in the blizzard. And these cops kind of pull him over and say, hey, man, the roads are closed, so you need to turn around and go back home. It's not safe. You go that way, it's, it's, you're liable to end up in a ditch. He said, I don't care, officer. My wife's in a cult. I got to go get her out. So he's just plowing through the blizzard, just going, you know. He's determined. So he ends up going to Pensacola. And she talks to him and says, now listen, honey. If you'll just sit through one service, hear the whole thing through. And he ends up coming. He agreed to do it, but he ends up coming in the middle of the worship. He's kind of late. She's on the front row. And he was mad because he's like, you know, of all things, she's going to be on the front row. So he was already going in there ticked off. I mean, he didn't want to be there. He thought she was in a cult. And now she had the nerve to, to make him commit to sit through a service. And not only that, but he's going to make, she's going to make him sit on the front row. And so he's going down the aisle, just fuming mad. And he plops down beside her, you know. He's not worshiping, doesn't want to be there, arms folded, bad attitude. And she's praying the whole time, God, you got to get a hold of this man. Please save my husband. And she had been praying and fasting for him. And that night, you know, he sat through the sermon, and then the altar call came. And those that had ever been there, I'll try to explain it, but when the altar call came, there was such a conviction of the Holy Spirit, and it was physically there. So I don't know if the videos really do it justice, but there was something there that you felt like you needed to go down and get saved. It was strong. I mean, even if you were saved, you, you felt like, well, I better make, make sure I'm right, you know. And he didn't budge. And she starts crying. She's like this, you know, praying and kind of crying. She's thinking, my God, if he can't get saved right now, there's no hope for this man. You know, that's what she's thinking, you know. And um, he's just there just to fulfill his requirement. He agreed to be there. And so all of a sudden, they moved from the altar time. People came down and got saved. Now they're moving to a time where they start going through and praying for people. And the pastor came down and for whatever reason just kind of made a beeline to this guy and lays hands and prays over him and the guy is just sitting there just you know like whatever he's getting prayer and and the pastor leaves and then Steve Hill's praying for people and and if you know about the revival I know I know many of you weren't there but I mean people were just kind of flying everywhere when, it, when they start praying and so brother Steve had come by and just saw the guy kind of standing there and the guy had gotten prayer already, so God was already kind of doing something. And the guy had his wife said, let's go, and Steve walks by him and says, hey, man, it's good to have you tonight. Just goes to shake his hand, and the guy says, all right, and shook his hand. As soon as their hands connected, the guy was picked up and thrown in the air, hit the wall, collapses, falls over. Another world. His wife was just in awe. Because she knew, she knew that, I mean, how her husband was. I mean, there's obviously, there's no way this wasn't God, right? And so she's just in awe, and she starts crying. He's out for a long time, long and short of it. See, you take a snapshot of that, you think, my God, what was that? But listen, get your video camera out, because now, years later, he not only got saved radically, he moved his whole family there to be in the revival, bought a house there, start, you know, he moved his business there and everything and started being a part of the ministry of the church. Went from being somebody that was a heathen to somebody on fire for God in one moment, an encounter with God. That was his Saul of Tarsus, Damascus Road experience. It takes that with some people. Some people, the Holy Spirit can just move in and they'll respond. Other people, the Holy Spirit's got to get his two before and just whack them right across the forehead like that guy right there, right? And um, 
I remember Lyndall was sharing this maybe here. He was sharing this story about this is where sometimes people are just touched gently. Uh, here's a story about a heathen. Well, what about the unsaved religious people? Because Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, they call him Lord. We did all these things in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, throw him in a hill. He never knew him. What about all the thousands and thousands and multiplied thousands of religious people that go to church every week and live moral lives but aren't saved? What about them? Well, Lyndall told a story about this sweet old lady. And she went to Brownsville back in the early days of the revival. She went there. There was no crowds. There was no line. She just comes into this church. She heard God was moving, goes into the foyer, gets the little bulletins. Remember the bulletin announcement thing? She's reading it. She goes down the aisle, sits down. She ends up in the front area to the side. And she's this sweet old lady. lives a moral life, religious lady. She's there reading the bulletin. The worship starts. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the worship starts, and she finds herself just kind of collapsing underneath the pew, and she's gone. And next thing you know, she gets up. I mean, and she's thinking five minutes have passed. But they're praying for people on the altar. She missed the entire service and didn't even know it. And... And she's telling this story to Lyndall because she sat kind of where Lyndall was leading worship. And Lyndall said, well, that's, that's interesting. But he's like, what's, what's the outward? Well, she said, I'll tell you what happened. She said, when I, went, when I left that service, she said, I felt so transformed as a person. She said, I, I used to try to pray, but it was difficult to pray. But she said, after that, it was so easy to pray. She said, I used to feel God was far away, but now he felt like he was right there with me. She said, I read the Bible and I would understand. You know what happened there? She was just religious, but that night she got born of the Spirit. That's what happened. That's the difference. She always believed in her mind, you know, but now she was born of the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And let me just stop and say this. This is so important what I'm going to say. Salvation is not mentally agreeing with a set of truths. Salvation is not keeping these rules. Salvation is not reading something out loud or repeating a prayer. It's not joining a church. This is really important because most people out there don't even know what salvation really is at all. They think, well, I go to church and I'm a good person. Well, you know, great for you, but that doesn't mean you're going to be in heaven when you die. Otherwise, it's works. And that's what's scary. People tell people, come down and say this prayer. Now you're saved. Well, how do you know? See, salvation is a new birth. You're a new creation. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And that's why Romans says that the Holy Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. It's not a preacher's responsibility ever to tell people they're saved. It's a preacher's responsibility to preach the word. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to bear witness with somebody that they're saved. And once that happens, nobody's going to tell you any different because I just tell you from my perspective, people can say all day long that I'm not saved and they can really believe that, but I know I'm saved because the Holy Spirit in me is bore witness with my spirit and I'm a child of God. It's a new birth. It's a spiritual thing. And that's why in these great revivals, that's why so many people are getting saved because the Holy Spirit will sweep into a location 
and people are gripped with the fear of God, all of a sudden they see the reality of Jesus Christ and what he did for them and how much of a sinner they really are. And they reach out to him, Lord, forgive me for my sins. That's only by the Holy Spirit that somebody can really do that. And as they accept, they put their faith in him and they grab hold of salvation, the Holy Spirit enters inside of them. They're born again. They become a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's word is now written on their hearts. They're circumcised in the heart spiritually. And what that means is that they're a new creation. When they leave out, the old things are going to begin to pass away because now if they're truly born of God, they're going to no longer desire the things that they used to. And all of a sudden now, they, they don't want to get drunk anymore, and they don't want to do the drugs, and they don't want to go to these type of parties. And now they're starting to talk to their friends about it. And so here's what happens. Their friends don't want to hang out with them anymore. And they end up now that they're hungry for God. They want to go to church. They want to read the Bible. They want to pray. And their friends think they're crazy. They're like, that's boring. That's stupid. What's wrong with you? They say, I can't help it anymore. I'm different. Why don't you come with me? And some of them might, and they might get saved. Others don't want it, and they'll begin to persecute them. But salvation is a Holy Spirit thing. It is not of man. It is not religion. And that's very important that we understand that. And I think that that's the great tragedy in, in America and around the world, that there, there are probably millions of people. With the, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think there's millions of people around this world that are religious, and they're a good person. They live a moral life. They go to various churches of different kinds, and they think that they're saved, only to find out on Judgment Day that they never were born of God. They never were really his. That's a scary thought. But Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did all these things. And he says, basically, if I paraphrase it, all these works that you're saying you did doesn't mean anything. I never knew you. I used to love the sermons at Brownsville. Steve Hill, that, that place was so electrified with the power of God. And that's what his message, when I, when I remember when I met with him, I met with him for us to pray together. I wanted him to pray over me. I mean, obviously I'm a Christian. First thing Steve does is sit me down, just the two of us, and he's like, do you really know Jesus? I said, well, yeah, I do. He said, what's he been saying to you? I said, well... It's a rather personal question, but and I began to tell I began to say, he's actually been talking to me about this, that, and he said, okay, so I really don't want to know. He said, I wanted to know that you have a relationship with Jesus and that he speaks to you. Because then he knew I really was a Christian. Otherwise, our little meeting wouldn't have been about him praying for me, it'd been about him leading me to Jesus. But he, he prayed with me. But that was his message at Brownsville the whole time was, was this. He said, I remember... You can go to hell tonight with baptismal water still dripping off your face. You can go to hell tonight if you just sang in the choir. You got a communion wafer in your mouth holding a hymnal. He said, none of those religious things are going to save you. And he said, don't tell me about your religious affiliation. He said, your little denominational tag that you wear is either going to burn off when you go down or it's going to fall off when you go up. But it ain't going to go with you when you leave this place. How many knows he's right? He's just telling it like it is, isn't he?
All right, I close with this. Ten major obstacles to revival, and I'm just going to read them. These are major obstacles to revival. Number one is unforgiveness. We better make sure that we have forgiveness in our hearts. All of us have been through things. All of us have... How many can honestly say, because I know I'm the first to raise my hand, that you went through something where it was hard to forgive somebody? You, how many, raise your hand, wave at me. Don't leave me up here like I'm the only heathen, all right? So I've had that where I really had to say, Lord, you're going to have to help me forgive this one. This is a good one. And God had to really help me. But that's the, one of the biggest hindrances to revive one people in churches is unforgiveness. Number two is tolerating unrepentant sin. Sometimes people may get mad because I don't agree with their sin. But the truth is, I don't agree with my sin either. That's why I've repented. And people get irritated, and it's like, well, I didn't write the Bible. I'm just telling you what it says. But tolerating unrepentant sin is a major block to revival. Let me, let me say that again. I don't even agree with my own sin. That's why I have repented. We all have got to repent and let God do a work in us. Number three, various prejudices must be repented of. Now, it can be ethnic. Maybe you don't like this particular race or this particular group of people. Maybe not ethnic, but you just don't like that group of people. And um, I remember this one man in Europe, he was a pastor, and he was saying that they had gypsies there. How many, I know we don't have gypsies here in Dallas that I know of. There might be a little group somewhere. I've never seen them. But in other places, these are traveling, traveling groups of people that a lot of times are real superstitious. They got their little magic and fortune-telling, and a lot of times they're a bunch of liars and thieves. They come to town, all these things end up missing, so people don't like them. But he remembered he was driving, and he saw a group of gypsies, and, and here he was wanting revival in his church. He's like, oh, those bunch of heathen, you know, he's driving. And God, God spoke to his heart, and he's like, man, Jesus died for them, just like for me. And God broke his heart that day to have a love for them. I remember a story. Derek, Derek Prince was describing this. I, I don't know. Anyway, he was out in the military somewhere, and if you've heard this story, maybe you can help me with some details, but there was some tribal group that had some crazy customs. I mean, one of them was that something to this effect. They would take like the fat of animals or whatever, and they, they would put it in their hair and, I mean, slick it way up or whatever. And they, anyway, and they, they never bathed. And Derek was saying, he said, man, he said, I had, he said, I just didn't, I'm putting it the right way. He didn't care for those. They, he didn't have any reason to really deeply love that group of people. But he said, one night, God, the Holy Spirit, came on him and gave him a burden to begin to pray for those people. And he said that God gave him a love for those people. He began to really deeply intercede for them. And long and short of it was, he was able to witness to some of them. And God answered his prayer as some of them got saved. But this was some tribal group that, that was never heard the gospel, a bunch of heathen. And he, he didn't have any reason in the natural to, anyway, I think I made my point. But God's got to give us a love for people. 
Sometimes there's going to be groups of people that if we're not careful, we may not like that group for whatever reason. And even in Christendom, I think that this probably the biggest prejudice is between denominations. And that's one of the greatest hindrances. I was a part of a Pentecostal church, and um, I got permission back in the days in the 90s revivals. I was going to take a group of young people to Brownsville, and God was really moving. I mean, these young people would have got touched. Their whole lives could have been transformed. I mean, look at what God did for me and, and millions of others. And I, w- I was taking I was excited. The leadership already told them they could go. I had all these, you know how it is, those that's been in church, you got to do all these fundraising and stuff. And these young people worked hard. They were out there washing cars and making food and everything else, bake sales, all this stuff, raised the money. Last minute, after I'd already been told that we were going, last minute the pastor comes up to me and says, well, you guys aren't going. I said, well, why? And he said, well, he said, because this is what he said. He says, because we're such and such denomination and the revival over there is a different denomination. He meant it, and we didn't get to go. Now, here's the thing. I wonder, because a lot of those young people, you know, I ended up leaving there, and a lot of them didn't turn out good. I wonder how many of them could have been saved. But religious arrogance and religious prejudice. So we've got to repent of all those prejudices and being so critical and judgmental of others. People different than us, people with their struggles. As a pastor, man, I've seen people really struggle with this, that, and the other, and God gives you a love for people. But let me just tell you, be careful. Be careful being so critical and judgmental. That's a religious spirit. It's a demonic thing. It's very evil. It's very prideful. Um, when people are struggling with their sins, etc., etc., we need to pray for them. And sometimes it's hard. We can get frustrated sometimes when people don't change. But just be careful about being critical and judgmental of others because that can also be a major block to revival. Another major block in revival is ignoring the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Did everybody see that? Our ministry financially helps in that area. But be careful. Because Cornelius saw a great revival in his family. And what did the angel tell Cornelius? Your prayers and your alms to the poor have gone up before God as a memorial offering. Now send for Peter. And revival fell on his whole family. So our giving does mean something to God. And ignoring the poor, the widows, and the orphans is dangerous. So those that want to give above your tithes and offerings and you put it on there for benevolence, it goes to that. We make sure of it. Also, be careful with this one. Pet doctrines and traditions of men. How many people have been indoctrinated against certain things? They grew up in a particular denomination or whatever that taught them healing was not for today. They taught them against tongues, whatever it is, and they have their pet doctrines and traditions of men, and now because of that, they're critical of those things and think that it's not God. That can be a major block to revival. Another major block to revival can be self-condemnation. This is where people don't really believe in their heart what God says about them.
we have to shake that off. We've got to have faith in what God says. What does God say about us? He says that we're the righteousness of God in Christ. He says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. It doesn't matter about how we feel. It matters what God says. And another one, this is a big one, another block, major block to revivals, legalism. People, it's all about the rules and the do's and don'ts and, and watch this, don't watch that. Go here and don't go here. Do this, don't do that. That's, that's basically, that's their walk with God. That's it. That, and they, they just can't get beyond that. It's a relationship. And if you really walk in the light as he's in the light and you walk in a relationship, you don't have to have any type of a fear about you that you're, you're going to do something or, or that, oh, I don't measure up. Or if I, if I do this tiny thing, God's going to be mad at me or whatever it is. Look, if you're walking with him, we don't have to live in this weird spiritual legalism of spiritual fear or spiritual pride Man, pride, spiritual pride, that stuff, all that legalistic stuff where it's just about do's and don'ts. You shouldn't have to live in that realm. You should live above that because we're walking in the Spirit. The people that are legalistic and religious, many times they're the ones that fault find others because maybe they, they did something or watched something or a part of something, were over here doing this, that, and the other, and they're real judgmental of that. But... That's legalism. If you're not careful that you're judging people and you're being, it's all about rules. Look, when God, when they have an encounter with God, they're going to be different. Pray for them. I'm dealing, I'm coming up against religious demons. I can feel it. Not in the people here per se, but just in general. This sermon goes directly against religious demons. But that legalism business, once we have a relationship with God, we live above legalism. Because I walk with the Lord. If the Lord says, hey, don't go over here, don't do this, don't say that, don't <laughs> watch this, don't participate in this, you know, I just walk with the Lord and I'm happy. I trust the Holy Spirit. Also, here's the last two. It's a big one. Number nine, tolerating a Jezebel spirit in the camp. Oh, my Lord. You cannot tolerate Jezebel. And the last one, and those that know anything about Jezebel, if you tolerate that stuff, there is an oppression. Look at Elijah. There is an oppression. There's a confusion. There's a depression. It is a horrible thing. It's witchcraft. All right, the last one is this. This is one that may surprise some people. Disrespecting your spouse or your home being out of order. Did you know of 1 Peter 3? It talks about, and this goes either way, husbands or wives, okay? But he's saying to the husband, if you're, if you're being mean to your wife, this is what he said. He said, God's not hearing your prayers. Did you know that was in the Bible? But that goes both ways. If a wife is being really mean and hateful to her husband, God's not answering your prayers. I mean, I love you, but that's just what it says. And so there's got to be a treating each other right, and there needs to be a home that's in order and unified. 
And so I would just say this as I close. Those, those are ten obstacles, unforgiveness, tolerating sin, various prejudices, being critical, ignoring the poor, pet doctrines, self-condemnation, legalism, tolerating Jezebel, and disrespecting your spouse or your home out of order. Those are things that can hinder revival. But the main thing I would say to River of Life is this. We've got to be under authority and be unified because something significant is on the horizon for us, okay? And just press in. Let God do in you whatever he needs to do. Let me just pray if you can close down recordings. But, Lord, we thank you for moving upon this. I thank you, Lord, for the revival that's coming and those that are being prepared for it.